Welcome to Laptop Gurus from 23, a brand new podcast which aims to provide a deeper level of analysis than you'll find anywhere else. Each episode will be joined by an expert guest to take a deep dive on three of the biggest stories dominating the football agenda. So without further ado, our guest for episode two of Laptop Gurus is Sam Tai of Ranks FC podcast and plenty of other places. Sam, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm good, Tom. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time. Can you tell us a little bit, first and foremost, it's a new venture about Ranks FC, obviously very popular in a previous uh, kind of guise in a previous format, but what, what are you guys up to there? Yeah, so Ranks FC is, is, is my own podcast, my baby, I guess. It's, uh, it's one that I co-host with Jack Collins and Dean Jones, and the previous guys that you mentioned was BR Football Ranks, so we used to be part of, of Bleach Report, and there was some structural changes at the company shall we say and uh, Jack and Dean uh, are no longer with BR so we wanted to carry on the podcast first and foremost so we needed to start kind of like an independent crusade I guess to keep it going so you know we changed from BR football ranks to ranks FC and, and that's us so we still do what we always did we talk football and we rank stuff so we like to think it's fun and fast paced and you know we'll rank anything we can you know we, we ranked set piece takers last week uh, we ranked summer transfer moves we'll rank players that have never won the ballon d'or we'll rank pretty much anything so uh, it's a lot of fun so if you do like what i have to say over the course of the next hour or so then obviously you can hear more of me every week on ranks fc uh, that's in any podcast catcher do give that a listen subscribe and so on because it's a fantastic podcast and a fantastic kind of uh, continuation of what sam and the guys were doing previously sam data in football as we know has has exploded in recent kind of years and I think the kind of pace of change around it is is, is ever increasing what's, what's your own relationship uh, with football data and football analytics like? Uh, I would say it's probably uh, casually involved would be the relationship <laughs> status I guess I mean look I'm really fortunate to uh, to be able to work with with say 23's uh, toolbox which is fantastic I was plugged there at the start and um, yeah. yeah I've used I've used a couple of other you know competing platforms and analytics tools as well so as you know, as a as a sports journalist, I think it's important to try and embrace this side of it as much as you can and become au fait with it. And I've been fortunate to use a few different platforms and and toolboxes. So I'd say I'm probably more exposed to data than your regular journalist and your print newspaper journalist. But you'd never call me like a data analyst or a data journalist. I'm some kind of happy hybrid in the middle, which is uh, which is where I feel comfortable. Well, I think that's a good place to be. Well, uh, this is our second episode, of course. Uh, on the previous episode, we discussed some kind of pertinent transfer news, Thomas Partey, Edison Cavani, what have you. But with the season settling down, we decided to look at some of the kind of big narratives uh, across the European football landscape as things stand. And the first that we wanted to discuss, and Sam, I know, uh, you do a bit of work with this football club, is Southampton. They've had a remarkable uh, year or so, and as I think everyone knows full well and is probably sick of hearing at this stage, they were thrashed 9-0 by Leicester uh, just over a year ago, October 25th of last year. It was the biggest league defeat in the club's history and the biggest win in the Premier League era, or joint biggest win, I should say. Obviously, at that point, things looked pretty bleak and they had back-to-back trips against to Manchester City, uh, in the league and league cup following that which they actually came out of quite well if memory serves and more than a year on Ralph Hasenhutl's put together a really quite impressive side and without uh, changing a vast amount of the personnel was he done in that in that kind of intervening 12 months or so to affect this remarkable turnaround Sam Yeah uh, so I've been working with Saints since Claude Puel's first season uh 
what a fun time that was. Um, I, write, <laughs> I write for their match day program, or the magazine as they call it, and I write for their website as well. So I do tactical analysis and opponent tactical analysis. And uh, my claim to fame on that last season was Sean Deitch showed the page of my opposition analysis in the mag- match day magazine to his players in the dressing room before the game ah. and said, that's what they think of you. And uh, Burnley went out and won that game. And then Daesh referenced it in the post-match press conference afterwards, which was loads of fun. Thank you very much, Sean. So got me in a bit of trouble. <laughs> um, they even had the following press conference. Ralph Hasenhutl had to genuinely comment on this, which was, it just got completely out of hand. But anyway, um, it's got a bit better since. Um, there have been some ups and downs since the Claude Poyle first season in the time I've been at, I've been at Southampton. And I was super excited for Hazen Huttle to arrive because I loved what he put together at Leipzig. And I was really excited about how he might transfer that to Southampton. Just pull you up on the 9-0. Southampton fans despise the mention of the 9-0. And I appreciate it sets the tone and the context that so you have to bring it up. But did you know that fans play a version of bingo during games every weekend in which they guess which minute the commentator will mention the 9-0. <laughs> and they all play it on Twitter. And, and somebody always wins within about 10 minutes. Um, look, that, that result was obviously tragic. And it gave Southampton, as a football club, the opportunity to say, Ralph Hasenhutl, well, your philosophy is quite cool, but it's not taking so goodbye. They had the opportunity to say that, they did not take it. Instead, they basically publicly reaffirmed their faith in him as a manager and his methods. And they made it very clear to the players instead, like buck up, like take on the ideas or get out. And like, we're not sacking Ralph. We'll be sacking you instead. And I don't know if it was just because that was such, such a watershed moment. And it was so bleak that everyone just went, well, we can't let this continue. This is horrendous or if it was just a natural progression or, and that that result was just a total aberration on a really weird wet night where Bertrand got sent off nice and early and things just collapsed. Also, very rare that you see a team basically try and rack up 10 goals in the way Leicester did. They took shots from every angle. They were desperate to absolutely mull of them. It shocked me, to be fair, that the, the sheer killer instinct that they showed. So all of it kind of compiled into one and it made for a really horrifying night. But the response as you say, has been incredible. And the last 12 months have been a lot of fun. And the most basic way you can explain it is the players finally just went, all right, well, it's Ralph's way and we've got to do it this way. And look what's happened. Absolutely. It's been a phenomenal turnaround and obviously sat top very, very briefly over the over the weekend after the 2-0 win against Newcastle on Friday night. As you say, you were a fan of Hassan Hoodle before he arrived in this country, he arrived with a big reputation from his time in Germany, uh, very clear uh, blueprint, tactical kind of ideology, tactical philosophy, whatever you want to call it. Um, has, has this always been the way? And what can you tell us about the way that, that Hasenhutl likes to set up his side and, and how he kind of goes into a club and, um, you know, implements that? Yeah, I mean, so I was excited for Hasenhutl at Southampton because I liked what he did at, at Leipzig and I was hoping it would transfer. And his, his approach is... is... <laughs> you know, without wanting to dumb it down too much, a lot of it is down to energy, aggression and bravery. Bravery is is a word that he uses like a hell of a lot. And mm. he also uses the word automatisms. Uh, so he wants things to become automatic. He consistently refers to his team's automatisms. So just like basic instinctive reactions to things. And that's, uh, you know, pressing triggers, shape of team, uh, player interchanging, uh, players interchanging positions, defensive line height, 
um, an in-depth knowledge of the system throughout. And it's all built in over time. It's why it takes a little bit of time. And without wanting to be too disrespectful to Southampton's crop, like they're going to take it on slower than Leipzig's crop because Leipzig's crop are just better. You know, when, mm. when he managed Leipzig, he had Timo Werner and Naby Keita, who play for Liverpool and Chelsea now. And he arrived and had, well, not those players at all. Um, I didn't see them at Ingolstadt, so can't comment on that. But the shape and the personalities of the team feel very similar, Leipzig and Southampton. It just took a little bit longer to install at Southampton, potentially because of culture, potentially because of language, although his English was very good from day one. I I imagine what he's trying to explain to these players is quite complex. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe it was just that he is such a good individual coach that he needed to get his hands on these players and really improve them. And you said it, like not that much has changed personnel-wise from the 9-0 to now. Like a lot of the standard 11 that you see, McCarthy, Bertrand, Bednarek, uh, Vestergaard, Romeu, Ward-Prowse, Armstrong, Redmond, Ings. I'm just going through the team in my head there. Like, they were all there when he arrived. He has transformed so many of these players. Ward-Prowse is the poster boy for this, but Vestergaard is the most recent kind of, yeah. wow, he is like twice the player that he used to be under a different manager. And the stability he's brought is great. The coaching element is great. The personality to the team is great as well. Yeah, it's absolutely right. And when you kind of list those players off, as you say, War Prowse has been the poster boy for this. Danny Ings has obviously had a fantastic year or so. But a lot of those other players, you think, well, they're not outstanding players. This is a team that feels very much kind of greater than the sum of its parts. Hosenhutl's system is something that interests me particularly. I read a couple of pieces that Carl Anker wrote for The Athletic uh, last season while he was covering Southampton, particularly kind of detailed on the pressing and the, the 4 2 two system how does that differ from a, a four four two from any other system i mean these are all kind of constructs of people's imagination i guess as much as anything but what what does that actually mean in reality what does a, a, a hasenhutl team look like you could describe hasenhutl's four two 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 as a four four two if you wanted to because obviously like we do our best with numerical labelings right but sometimes they only get you half the picture but i think the difference absolutely between a 4-4-2 and Hasenhutl's 4-2-2-2. The distinction is probably how the wingers operate. And I'd, I'd put the, the word wingers in inverted commas there because they don't really have wingers. Um, they roam inside to play as kind of like slightly wider number 10s. They're basically operating in the half spaces. And that means the fullbacks have to overlap them to provide the width. And when they do that, they've got basically two strikers, two number 10s, and two fullbacks probably to their side with two just behind them as a nice kind of two four two shape, if you will, which is kind of is very well spaced. And the wingers are coming inside as number tens to try and impact and overload certain zones inside the pitch with the help of the fullbacks running the flank. And from deeper positions when they build, the wingers drop quite quite far in, quite deep, collect the ball, spin and go. And then they've always got two strikers ahead of them. So again, it's a nice balance to them. They need the run of the fullback to maintain the width and take away a marker, but they have to come in, drop in and take the ball. Armstrong, Stuart Armstrong has become particularly good at this recently. Whereas I think really mm. early on under Hasenhutl, Redmond was the player that really grasped this first and made Saints a genuine transitional threat. And this is what they were for the first like... 12 to 18 months, they were really good on the counter, really good in transition. If you give them a bit more space to play in, they can move through the lines really quickly. Hasenhutl football moves the ball from line to line vertically as quickly as possible. It's not hoof ball, it's not, it's not goalkeeper to striker, it's line to line to line, but it's quick, it's snappy. So they were really good at that 
and really bad at breaking down deep blocks. And this explains partially why they were so poor at home. And the crowd, to be honest, made it a lot worse. Like, obviously, I've been down there a fair amount, and that is one Aggie crowd. I don't hold it against them, because lots of them are. And it is annoying when your team aren't making progress on the pitch. But the players were like deers in the headlight there. If you put them away to United or Arsenal, they'd slice through them on the counter. If you put Newcastle in front of them at home, they couldn't break them down, and the fans made it worse. So I'm really, happy, really intrigued to see what happens when, they, when the fans return, uh, to be honest with you. But over the last six months, or since June, finally, these last few elements of Hazen Huttel's philosophy has bedded in with the interchanges and the rotations and the way those number 10s or wingers kind of operate and drag people out of position and the rise in form of someone like Danny Ings has all led to, finally, the last piece of the puzzle, which is the ability to drag players out of position and break down those deep blocks in a way they couldn't before, which is... Basically, now while you're looking at a team who, over the course of a table in 2020, a top six, if you took mm. the table from June, they're probably, they could even be first, I don't know, but they were, they were the third best team post-lockdown in June and July, and they were top on Friday, so they must be right up there, and that's, that explains that last step that they've made. The role of Danny Ings, you mentioned there, and as I say, I don't want to kind of oversimplify this and, and boil it down purely to the goals of a striker who's obviously in exceptional form, but how does he fit into this what have Southampton done? What has Hasenhutl done to really unlock his potential? Because we've seen it in flashes previously and Liverpool obviously thought they were getting a player when they signed him and injuries, horrible injuries prevented him from achieving that potential. But at Southampton, it just it's just clicked in the last 12 months. It has. I mean, look, he's, he's a fantastic player and he only ever needed his knees to just behave for him to really prove to everybody how good he was because he had such terrible luck with injuries. He needed a good coach and a stable scenario just like everybody else does. And I think the thing to remember with Ings is that he's he's one of the smartest players I can think of. He is a really clever footballer. And he is given a role in this 4-2-2-2 where he is the kind of withdrawn striker. So again, we talk about balance through the Southampton side. The strike duo itself is, is beautifully balanced. Shea Adams is a powerful runner a direct player, and he'll run the channels, he'll hang off the shoulder of the defenders, and he'll stretch the pitch vertically and try and create those pockets of space between the defenders and the midfielders. And Ings will just, will just work off that, will just drop in, he'll take the ball in tight spaces, he'll facilitate, he'll roam around, he'll link up with the midfield and he'll, he'll start to create, and then he'll dive into the box, take shots, and he's a really good long shot taker as well. From 15 to 25 yards, he's one of the best in the division. And there was one goal against Villa that he scored from an acute angle, which was a stunner. It was a stunner. It was so, so mm. good. And this is, a, this is a player who's technically very sweet, but his football IQ is, is, is very, very high as well. And he's able to almost contextualize the madness of Hazen Huttel's system around him. Read mm. it, see what's happening, look at all the movements and just operate as if he's just like, just sort of chopping with the waves. And he always ends up in these little pockets of space that opponents can't track. And that's how they've got the best out of him. I, I, you tempted to call it he's been given a free license to roam. It's, that's probably not the case because he's also the pressing trigger up front. He's the one that decides when and where to press and everybody follows him. He's the lead presser. It's not Shea Adams, it's him. So he, that's another example of him showing his football IQ and intelligence. He's picking the opportunities for Southampton to push as a unit and try and compress the game. So he's not, he's not been given a free role. It's not like Meza Ozil swanning around in a number 10. <laughs> he's doing a simultaneously free and disciplined role on and off the ball. And it's remarkable that anybody can 
really do that because it's quite a lot to think about. And he does all that and scores 20 goals a season. One of the many reasons I think I couldn't be a modern day footballer being expected to have a free role and a disciplined role and be the press, the pressing trigger and so on, quite apart from my lack of fitness and ability, taking all that into account and applying it on a match day sounds like hard work. Sam, Southampton are third for goals scored from open play with 11, yet their open play XG at this stage is 6.27 according to the content toolbox. How do we explain that? Is it sustainable or is that the kind of secret of their success that they are evidently on a perform- running a bit hot, overperforming slightly? Or, or is there, can you explain that away in a way that will make Southampton fans happy? I mean, look, they are, they are running a bit hot and you would expect late lady regression to, to snag them at some point, but not to the point where they drop down to eighth or tenth. Because you take a look at their, um, you know, their, their open play goals, their 11 and their, their total goals, what is it, 16. Um, and the XG is significantly lower. I mean, just the Villa game alone, their XG was like 0.9 or something. And they scored four. And that's because James Ward-Prowse scored two beautiful free kicks and Ings scored that aforementioned goal from outside the box. And they scored four goals from a game in which their XG was like was less than one, basically. So that's a big skew. And we're talking about a very small sample size here. So there is one result there that can really throw things out. And yeah, I would say that they do probably come down to earth just a little bit, but not honestly, not by much. Like there's a certain strength in being able to score the kind of goals that Danny Ings does and create the kind of danger that James Ward-Prowse does from set-piece goals. And they may be low XG chances, but if you're good enough at doing those specific things, then you'll consistently do them. And James Ward-Prowse has scored like, you know, since Hazen Hussle arrived in the last couple of years, there's like only Kevin De Bruyne, I think, has really scored more goals as a midfielder. And that's also if you take like Mohamed Salah and Mane as, as forwards. There's not many that can match his goal yeah. tally. Southampton, like all good teams, have a variety of ways of scoring. Ward-Prowse from a dead ball, Ings from 15 to 20 yards, Adams into the channel, comes back inside, combines with Ings, Armstrong breaches the box. Like Theo Walcott has been added to that mix and he's, he's really grasping this. He's played three different positions in three games so far, left wing, right wing, striker. He's been great in all of them. This is a clever team, very well coached with a variety of ways of scoring. And those teams don't just fall into obscurity, I don't think. Just finally then, Sam, before we wrap up on the Saints, are there any players in this side who maybe don't get the credit they deserve? Who are the kind of unsung heroes that we might not be aware of when we see Ings and Ward-Prowse kind of taking the headlines most weeks? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of praise for Saints over the last few weeks or since June, rightly so. So a lot of these players are being recognised. Um Usually, when this question gets asked, you're tempted to go for the old holding midfielder, you know, the plodder, Oriol Romeo, who has been good. But I think actually the one that's genuinely really underappreciated is Ryan Bertrand. Because mm-hmm. Bertrand is super consistent. He basically never has a bad game, except when he got sent off in the 9-0. And he's, for some reason, completely out of the England reckoning. After missing the 2018 World Cup squad, he's not got back in since. We've had no left-backs for three months and Gareth Southgate won't, won't call him up. But he plays basically every game to a consistent 7 out of 10 standard. He performs a really important tactical role for the Southampton side that does go underappreciated sometimes. And like Bertrand may just be the best version of himself he's ever been right now as we sit here and talk. Like I'm struggling to remember a, a version of Ryan Bertrand that looks better than what we have right now. He doesn't get talked about like the others, so I'd go for him. Well, Southampton fans, sounds like it's pretty good news uh, as far as Sam's concerned from 
your perspective that things aren't going to drop off too dramatically. I certainly hope not, because it is nice to see another team up there uh, doing something something different and something innovative and succeeding with it as well. We'll take a short break and then we'll be back to discuss a particular individual out on the left-hand side of all places who may be not having the best time. Welcome back to Laptop Gurus. I'm joined today by Sam Tai from the Ranks FC podcast. We're now going to talk about an individual, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, the conundrum that Arsenal boss Mikel Arteta faces around his captain and talisman. Um, obviously, their leading scorer for the last couple of seasons, Golden Boot winner in 2018-19. Uh, there have been suggestions that he is fed up at the Emirates at being shunted out on the left-hand side. And he's only scored a couple of goals in the league so far this season. It's been a, a bumpy start, a rough start for him. Despite all this, he obviously played on the left-hand side quite a bit last season and got 22 Premier League goals, 29 in all comps. So Sam, has Mikel Arteta got some, does he have some justification for playing his captain and leading scorer out there uh, in a position where he does in the past seem to have scored relative ease? And if so, what's the kind of rationale between uh, behind that decision yeah so this is an interesting one it's a, obviously a super hot topic at the moment a lot of Arsenal fans watching you know their team fail to score enough goals uh, and really asking why one of the world's best poachers and number nines is not playing as the number nine and mm. it's not a it's not a simple conversation to have because the answer is not or it may not be <laughs> It's not simply Aubameyang is playing out of position. It's You have to understand like, the context of what I think Arteta is trying to do. And this is to his credit and both to his fault as well. Arteta wants to create like one really specific type of chance. Have you noticed this? Arsenal seem to be almost overcoached to a point. They don't really have a lot of creativity in their ranks. They play a 3-4-3 formation with three centre-backs, Wingbacks, sure, but they mostly just cross. They don't dip inside that much or don't dip inside as much as you'd want them to. The two central midfielders recently, Thomas Partey and Mohamed Elneny, are, you know, well, Elneny's not creative at all. And Thomas is, but from a deeper position. And that means you've got a Bamiya on the left, you've got Lacazette up front, you've got William on the right. So really, you're looking at three players to create outside of your fullbacks. That's, I would say, first from a starting point, that is not enough creative players on the pitch. For a team like Arsenal, you need more than that. You can't rely on that many players just to create all your chances. But it's to do with the circuits that they utilise. And it's the way they move the ball. And I refer you back to a couple of goals that they scored in the last couple of months. The goal that they scored against Manchester City in the FA Cup semi-final, where they went from back to front, uh, played out from the back, invited the press, mm. up to Lacazette, who cushioned the ball down and moved it wide. Pepe runs up the right side, crosses from right all the way over to the left, and Aubameyang finishes. I believe that that is the exact type of goal that Arteta wants to create every single game. And the reason I say they might be overcoached to a point is because there's not a lot of room for interpretation or creativity outside of these very well-established and rehearsed attacks and patterns that they utilise. And part of this is about creating a rehearsed and repetitive specific type of chance for Aubameyang. You look at his XG shot maps on the toolbox from la end of last season and the FA Cup, and you can see like he's taking shots from a very specific area of the box. It's not even of the pitch. It's like 
couple of yards inside from the left of the box, couple of like sort of 16 yards out, just in just in off the left line, and he's trying to curl it. Yeah. And it worked. It worked. It was great. I look at Aubameyang in this system and I compare him to Raheem Sterling at Man City. And if you take the Arteta-Guardiola comparison and, and call him a disciple and say that they are basically trying to do the same thing, which I think they are, Aubameyang is Sterling. And City do a really good job of creating that same, same specific chance for Raheem Sterling and he scores them all the time. Arsenal were doing the same thing for Aubameyang and it was working, but it's not anymore. So if the goal of the move is not to have the number nine finish the chance, if the goal of the move is to have the number 11, the left winger, finish the chance, then you wouldn't put Aubameyang as the number nine because the idea is your best finisher is the guy on the left. It's just the way the football works at Arsenal at the moment. And it's good, it's bad, it's something in between every single week. I don't know what it is. But that tells you that maybe something in the build-up is broken rather than Aubameyang is at fault on the left. So what we're saying, what you're saying there is, because my next question was going to be kind of how does his role change uh, if he was playing through the middle versus down the left? But it seems very much from what you're saying there, uh, although his role would change, the end kind of, and although we're trying to go deeper here and what have you, the end thing that people look at is goals, right? So playing in the number nine position, as it were, for Arsenal at the moment, wouldn't actually really affect that end output too drastically from what you've said. Well, yeah, I mean, it may, it may do. It depends on if uh, if Arteta decides to try and change the rhythm of his team. But ultimately, and this is just what I believe, right? This is what I've seen. But I, I believe he is trying to create a really specific chance. And that chance ends with the player in a Bamiyang's position taking a high XG shot. And last year, that was happening. And that was working. And he was scoring. This year, that's not working. So... We can reference his XG, you know, it's, if his XG is low, I don't think it's his fault. If his XG is low and his number of shots per game is low and it's dipped, it's because he's not being served up with the chances. So what's the problem here? It lies deeper. It lies deeper in midfield and it lies with the chance creation or lack of it. Because Aubameyang, you know Aubameyang as well as I do. Like He's what, 30-31 now? He has never in his life been a player who creates his own chances and finishes them like Harry Kane does. He has always been a player who gets on the end of things. He's an elite level poacher, but he's never been a player that creates his own chances. So if you're not creating for Aubameyang, he's basically useless. And I don't think it changes if he goes into the number nine position. Because if he's in the number nine position, he takes on Lacazette's role. What's Lacazette doing right now? Well, it seems first and foremost, he just presses. Um, and, he, and he, he, he creates like a team pressing shape and he works very hard from the front, which is why he looks absolutely exhausted after 55 minutes because, to be honest, his fitness has never really been that good anyway. And he's in charge of trying to move the ball from right to left or left to right and switch the emphasis of play. Lacazette's not the one getting on the end of these chances or shouldn't be. It's supposed to be the other guy. Well, you've answered my next question there. So what I'm going to do is refer you to another uh, visualisation that you tweeted of Arsenal's average positions against Aston Villa from the content toolbox uh, after that uh, rather galling defeat. What we can see in that very much is, the, is that uh, Willian and Aubameyang are the two kind of furthest forward of Arsenal's, uh, well, of any Arsenal player, but certainly of their attackers. And Lacazette dropped very deep, or, you know, most of his work was done far deeper, almost in a kind of midfield position. What, what went wrong there and what has to change for Arsenal to kind of get the very best out of this system, this this plan, in the way that Arteta intend, evidently intended it to work? Well, I mean, that shape, 
doesn't look good. Lacazette being that deep and Aubameyang and, and William being much, much higher up, much further wide and being, it looks, they look pretty cut off from the rest of the team. It doesn't look good. And you look at it actually on the pitch and like, to be honest, one of the main problems here is that Lacazette isn't playing very well. And um, if he does get a chance, he squanders it and he's not protecting the ball particularly well. Lacazette's a funny one. I do like him, but he's either 8 out of 10 or 0 out of 10. And there doesn't seem to be really any in between. He's either class or terrible. And you can't really have a player who's playing like a facilitating number nine role, a very important role in terms of how you're moving the ball and have him either be brilliant or terrible. I'd much rather he just be six out of 10 every week because he's going to get his fair share of touches and he's really important to orchestrating how these moves are made. And if he just doesn't show up one week, you're not going to get anywhere. So what needs to change? I mean, it's hard to say. I would probably say that, well, for... I referred to one of the earlier points, which is there's just not enough creativity in this side. And again, they feel overcoached to a point where everything's too well rehearsed. And you just take a look at the team they lost to on Sunday night in Aston Villa, who have a base structure, fine. They have a, uh, you know, a 4-2-3-1 formation of sorts. Ross Barkley is the 10, Watkins up front, Grealish on the left. You've got the two, the, the holding pivot of McGinn and Louise. Yeah, that's how they play. But they've in, in that side, they have two players in Barkley and Grealish who are total mavericks. And they are allowed to do whatever they want to do when they get the ball. And there's a freedom to that, which means that Villa, even when they're not playing particularly well, not building attacks very cleanly, they can just give it to one of those two players and go, off you go, Ross, off you go, Jack, see what you can do. And you know what? When you give it to Jack, more often than not now, it ends up in the back of the net. That's, what, that's how it's going. Mm. And with Arsenal, they actually do have a player like that in Nicola Pepe, who... It's the total opposite, I think, of what Arteta actually wants. He loves Willian because Willian does the basics really well and he understands the tactical nuances of his football. Nicola Pepe does the spectacular spectacularly. He does the basics terribly. So ultimately, he's night and day to what Arteta wants as a player. But he is that kind of player where if you are in a total creative monotony, Pepe can step in and just pull something out of the bag. And ultimately, what I would do if I was Arsenal is I would switch from 3-4-3 to 4-3-3. I would try and bring Saka into central midfield with Ceballos and Thomas Partey holding, if I could, and get Pepe on the right. And suddenly, you've got five players there that can make the difference rather than three. And I really do believe that something as simple as that could make a hell of a lot of difference against a team like Aston Villa. You saw at Old Trafford, they were very good. Because they were playing against a big side, they could play a bit more reactively. There's a bit more space. But against Villa, when they bedded in, there wasn't much that there wasn't much happening. But if you just add creative players to that mix, add Mavericks, add players that have license to do something off the cuff. Again, it sounds so so simplistic, but you can't really score enough goals if you only have three attacking players on the pitch. And Arsenal, a team like Arsenal, should not have that few number of of players like that I'm just going to throw this one out this is not put in the running order but uh, uh, something that from what you've said has sprung into my head was an accusation that was often levelled against Arsene Wenger's side was they were always trying to kind of score the perfect goal overplaying I wonder if now from what you're saying it's almost gone too far the other way that it's become too regimented and too you know there is a, as you say a goal that they're trying to a chance they're trying to create a goal they're trying to score and it's actually beaten a bit of that creativity, notwithstanding the fact the personnel has changed, out of the team. Oh, 100%. I mean, look, it's, it's, it's not something that people talk about that much, but I, um, a, couple of, a couple of coaches that I speak to quite regularly can't stand watching Man City anymore. And that will surprise some people. 
And I ask, why don't you like watching Man City? He's like, I just, I'm so sick of Pep Guardiola's like, like he's coached the team to within an inch of its life. And they're, they're really strongly the belief that someone like Kevin De Bruyne would be a lot better away from Pep Guardiola, which is a big call considering he nearly mm. broke the assist record last season in the Premier League. But if Arteta is a Pep disciple, and this is a problem that probably gets transferred down, and you can see it, there's, a, there's just that element of overcoaching, being too specific, and trying to control too many elements of the game of football, which in its increasing athleticism at the top level and its increasing creativity, you see teams like Aston Villa, you know, ripping you apart just by, just by virtue of having two players that are allowed to take risks and give it a go. And Arsenal are the total opposite of that. And in some ways, they're like Pep and like City, who, if you've ever been a bit bored watching City pass the ball around in specific scenarios and circuits... We're talking about the same thing here. Well, it sounds like it should be a compliment when you say they're like Pep and like City, doesn't it? But when you put it like that, less uh, less encouraging for Arsenal supporters. We'll take a short break and then we'll be back for the final part of today's show when we talk about Juventus's troubles in Serie A. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to part three of Laptop Gurus today. I'm joined by Sam Ty of the Ranks FC podcast, Bleacher Report and Southampton Football Club, among others. Well, in part three, we're going to discuss Juventus's uh, monopoly of Serie A and whether or not it's coming to an end. Ten in the row is very much on the line for Juve, who, by removing Maurizio Sarri from his post at the end of last season, declared that winning alone was no longer enough and the only thing that mattered style had to go along with substance. Andrea Pirlo has been promoted from his role as under-23 coach, just nine days after being appointed, and following a scintillating 3-0 opening day win over Sampdoria, the Bianconeri have won just one of their next six on the field, the exception being a COVID-rewarded win over Napoli. So after seven games, it's Milan who sit top of the table with Sassuolo, Napoli and Roma between the leaders and holders Juventus. So is this the season Juventus' dominance of Serie A is finally brought to an end. I mean, I think so. I, I said it in pre-season that this would be the year. I actually picked Inter Milan as the ones to do it, although they haven't filled me with confidence over the last six weeks or so. <laughs> but there's also nothing I've seen from Juve and from Pirlo that would convince me to really go back on that prediction. I mean, I feel like they've been a huge question mark in a bad way. And what I see right now is not the makings of a title-winning team. So, um, look, I'll be honest, I am someone who really likes change and new things and, and fresh, exciting storylines. And Juve winning the title every year, it balls the head out of me. So I don't really have an allegiance to any Serie A team. But I really hope this is the year that Juve's dominance comes to an end because we need to talk about something new. That we do. What do Pirlo's Juventus actually look like? How do they set up? How do they play? They do something quite different almost every time I see them. Um, I haven't seen every single game they've played, but every time I've turned them on, they have changed either their shape or massively changed their personnel. And each time that happens, their approach to, to attacking and defending changes as well. And... Like, obviously, you've got to cycle through your new options, a couple of new summer acquisitions. You get Weston McKennie in. You get, you know, Dejan Kulisewski in. COVID has affected the selections. You know, obviously, some some unavoidable tinkering has happened. But some, I, I do feel like Pirlo has changed too much, too often, too soon. And in terms of common themes, it's really hard to latch on to too much because of how often he's changed it. And... What do we see? Three, uh, a 3-4-1-2 shape in the first game against Sampdoria. And Ramsey in the hole behind Ronaldo and Kulisewski. He looked really good. He had a midfield two 
in the back three or five. He moved away from that quite quickly. Uh, went to a, uh, he started playing Danilo at left centre back, which I really didn't like. He tried Chiesa at left wing back, so he was playing uh, a left centre back who was right footed and a left wing back who was right footed, which was just <laughs> like, I mean, honestly, if they hadn't been playing, um, who was it? Is it Dino Kiev they played in the Champions League? Uh, if they hadn't been playing like, uh, you know, a weaker side, they wouldn't have got away with that. Um, I've recently, we've seen a flat 4-4-2 with Ramsey on the right. It's actually a bit Southampton-y, actually. Maybe he's copying Hasenhutl. Um, But what we can say, he's definitely going to try and rely on Ronaldo, which is fair enough. He's definitely going to try and mould Kulisewski into, into the team, potentially at the expense of Dybala. Quadrado looks extremely important. And for some reason, Danilo does as well. Um, but everything else seems to change quite a lot, mate. Every time, every time I watch them, it's like, oh, this is new. I have to write down the formation and check all the names and go, huh, okay, add that to the pile. That's the 600th thing that Pirlo has tried this year. And I struggle, I struggle to explain them because he changes it so often, I can't get a grip on it. Let's talk about one of those names you mentioned there, Dejan Kulusevski. Uh, spent last season alone at Parma, did, did fantastically well. Of course, uh, bought by Juventus in advance of the summer, an indication of just how well he did on loan there. What sort of player is he? Because he's, he's quite interesting. He's a little bit little bit different, actually, from your, your typical kind of right, right-sided right midfielder, isn't he? He's not a winger. Like, no, no way in hell is this guy a winger moving forward. He was, I think he was playing quite a specific counter-attacking role, uh, a powerful running role for Palmer on loan. And he has mm. played a bit on the right for Juve. Uh, but when I first saw him playing and saw him playing out on the right-hand side, basically, I'd never seen him play. I saw... I saw that there was a, a winger in, in Serie A on loan from Atalanta um, at Parma making waves. I thought, okay, let's have a look at him. I turned the footage on. I looked at him and went, are you kidding me? This is like, he's like six foot three and built out. He's stocky. He looks like a target man. I thought, no way is this guy a winger. When when I had a look at his Sweden under 21 performances, he's playing as a support striker or a striker or a number nine. He even played central midfield. I thought, you are a central player. You play down the spine and the side. So what we've seen a little bit is, I've seen a lot of him in a two, a, front, a genuine front two. Um, the one against, the, the formation he played against Sampdoria, where Ronaldo played as the left striker and Kuliseski played as the right striker. And they were allowed to split out to the wide areas, both of them, Ronaldo left, Kuliseski right, and then come back in on their stronger foot. Kuliseski, you know, talking of scoring specific goals, all of his goals look the same, don't they? They all take that same trajectory into the bottom corner. They're all caught, kind of curled on the left foot from a right, right-sided penalty spot. And yeah, I, he's a, I think he's going to be a really good player. He's just not a winger at all. Like he was just serving a purpose, which is fair enough. But for Juve, he's going to be a striker. He's going to be a really good one as well. Let's move away then from Juventus. Milan has said the surprise early leaders, unbeaten at this stage as we record. What have you made of them at this at this point? And and do they have enough in your view to to go the go the distance for the first time in well a, a very long time since Ibrahimovic was there? Possibly. I mean, I love this Milan side. I do love it. It's got good quality. It's got good depth and it feels really well built as well. Um, if you start listing off, like take modern football and like what, what do you expect from a, from a modern football formation and what kind of players do you have? You start listing it off. You need a midfield who can create but also do the hard yards and run and bring serious energy. You need fullbacks who are elite athletes and very impactful in the final third. You need airily dominant, strong centre-backs with good recovery pace. And you need a variety of creative options in that attacking line who can all do slightly different things. And if you need them to, pull something out of the hat. Milan have all of that 
and a really, really good goalkeeper. And almost all of them are like 20, age 25 and under. You know, it's a good vein of youth to the, to the project with Zlatan, the perfect foil, you know, leading the whole thing and keeping them focused, making sure their level doesn't dip, that professional element that we all saw of. He's been, he's like a father figure to them and it's really impressive. And we saw against Verona at the weekend, didn't we? They were 2-0 down. They just would not lose. They just refused mm. to lose the game. And Zlatan had a goal disallowed in the 91st minute. So what does he do? Well, two minutes later, he puts it in the back of the net again. There is a resilience to this team as well. I am not going to say that they have enough to last the distance, although I do think they have the depth to get to, to basically make their way through the entire season. I'm just going to stick with my original prediction of Inter Milan have enough to last the course and probably will if they figure themselves out. Uh, but Milan, I mean, they feel like a lock for the top four and a return to the Champions League. And can I just say, finally finally, they'll be back in the Champions yes. League. No, absolutely. It doesn't feel right without them in a way, does it, given their uh, their pedigree in that competition. Towards the end of last season, sort of springtime, I think the, the kind of mutterings out of that part of the world were very much that it would be goodbye to Stefano Pioli and it would be Ralph Ranić that was going to come in, obviously having done very well at RB Leipzig and, you know, hugely experienced coach in the Bundesliga. They changed their mind because Pioli did so well and went on such a fantastic run towards the end of the season. And with hindsight, of course, that looks like um, an inspired decision. What what kind of changed in that period? What has he implemented at Milan to really get the best from this group and, and, and get them into the position they are now? Well, I mean, specifically from like, comparing last season to this season, not a lot has changed. So it's, it's all about what Pioli put in place basically towards the start of 2020 and like Sam Maguire did a piece on this, you know, for the 23 website, which I read and, and pretty much nailed it. Um, Pioli is, 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 a, is a manager who seems to be able to get a tune out of a lot of young players and able to put the foundations in place, which I'm sure is what they wanted with a view to moving into, you know, Rangnick. But, you know, deciding to stay with Pioli was, was a really bold move because this, this Rangnick appointment was like, it was done. Uh, it, it was it was mm. it was a done deal, and the preparations were already in place. The recruitment team were already looking at certain types of players to fit Rangnick's philosophy. Like it was it was happening from as early as January. It was happening. So to pull the plug on it was it was quite the move. Um, but I mean, ultimately, I think if you're trying to, uh, I mean, if we're going to like apportion credit, I'd say the transformation of Milan has been largely fueled by like genuinely superb recruitment. And I'm not trying to take anything away from Pioli there, who's obviously using his pieces very well. But the player quality and the balance of squad that he is being handed is fantastic. Like, they just keep knocking signings out of the park. And when you've got a spine to call on, moving from one season into another, of Donnarumma, Romagnoli, Kair, Benassa, Kessie, and Zlatan. I mean, as spines go... It's fantastic. And the fact that they were all there last season and they're all in tune with each other, you just get to add a few pieces. You know, we see a bit of Dalla in the Europa League. We see a bit of Brahim Diaz. We see a bit of Sandro Tonali. All high caliber, high potential players. But they're not playing as much right now. They're pushing this first 11 to get even better. I think this is, what, I think this is the source of their power. It's the, it's the recruitment element to it. It's the, it's the fantastic work they do in the summer window, which is just, it, it's just handed a manager, just a, an absolute dream of a squad. Like how many of these players that you're watching right now, you know, Benassa, Teo Hernandez, Sandro Tonali, they're all like Rafael Leal, they're all going to make, they're all going to go for 50, 60 plus million 
if they ever leave. Mm-hmm. This this is a, a hugely valuable squad that they've assembled and the players are playing properly at the same time. Let's just touch on Teo Hernandez as well because I bloody love him and he's just so much fun to, so much fun to watch, isn't he, when he's in full flight? Why didn't he cut it at Real Madrid? Why, why has he been such a success at Milan? Is it, is it as simple as obviously he's actually got game time here, of course, um, but but what is it that just works in this Milan sort of set up for him? I guess. Well, if you think about him and what he is as a player, um, in terms because he's he's kind of he's more of a <laughs> he's more of like a left wing back than a left back, isn't he? He's constantly bombing so, forward into space. He's such a powerful runner. He's such a direct presence, and he's got a hell of a shot on him as well. If you think about all those traits that he has, Real Madrid were very good at identifying Marcelo's natural replacement, wouldn't you say? Because Teo is essentially a more powerful version of Marcelo, maybe slightly less technical, yeah. but more kind of in your face. He has more thrust to him. He's a horrible He's a horrible player to defend against. I remember um, talking about his shot power and um, Asmir Begovic texted me to say, he was on loan at Milan at the time, he texted me to say that when they do the shooting drills, Teo is an absolute disaster to save against and they have to strap their fingers up properly and they, they, the goalkeepers really, really, really dislike the shooting drill when Teo <laughs> steps up to the ball. He said, I saw your tweet and it was just, uh, just made me laugh because it's, it's true, it's absolutely, it's like being shot with a bullet. Um, so if you think about it in that sense, he was a smart plan B for Real Madrid. And I guess the problem with Teo with a player like that is I think he got some injuries first and foremost. And Marcelo just wasn't quite ready to, to, to go quietly. And, you know, his fitness levels are, have been insane over the years. Um, the opportunities for Teo to really play and, and stake a claim in the team probably didn't arise. And he was, I think he was on quite a lot of money as well, wage-wise, because Real Madrid players are. So when the opportunity to, to basically you know, cut him for 20, it was about 20 odd million, wasn't it? They, they ended up signing him for, mm. I think they just kind of went, yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it, balance the books we'll, and, we'll, and we'll move on. And then obviously later on down the line, not sure, shortly after Marcelo actually does hit that wall, does decline. They're probably sat there thinking, crap, we could really have used Teo Hernandez here. Um, and they have to go and spend 50 million on Furlong Mendy, who is a very, very different player, isn't he? He's much more defensively minded and, and secure and safe. I think Mendy's great, by the way. I love Furlong Mendy, but... He's very different to Teo and Marcelo. Um, and I, I, I'm tempted to say, as sort of beige as this answer is, is that sometimes the stars just don't quite align for you, do they? And Teo's stars at Real Madrid, they just couldn't... Uh, six months more and they may have fallen into place, but he just missed it. But I don't think it was the greatest decision because he's loved at Milan no. and Milan are on the up. No, it certainly won't be the uh, the last player that Real Madrid snap up with, with high hopes, don't give the opportunities to, and then perhaps live to regret moving on. Just finally, Sam, before we wrap up then, what are the other challenges? Obviously, Sassuolo, real, you know, doing something quite interesting and up there, flying high, Napoli under Gattuso, which I, I never anticipated doing very well, and Roma also making a, a bit more of a go of it, seemingly, uh, this year under Paolo Fonseca. Who, who's it caught your eye? Who do you think could be in that kind of mix-up? And obviously, Inter as well, you have to assume... Will uh, will hit a bit of form and come good at some stage. Yeah, the, I mean, Inter are bothering me for the first time ever. I've said this on on ranks. I've said this a few times now. So it's boring to those that have heard it before. But for the first time ever, I'm unable to put my finger on exactly what this Antonio Conte side wants to do or what it is. I've always been able to identify exactly what an Antonio Conte side mm. is, what they're trying to do, what approach they take to a game. Are they defensively minded, attacking minded? What are their build up patterns? 
I don't know if it's just because they've had a couple of new players and coronavirus is obviously making things much more difficult. Hakimi hasn't been able to bed into the team, things like that. Maybe it's that. But Inter are, look a confused team and that bothers me. But you have to imagine with that depth and that quality that they will come good at some point. And with Conte in charge, who is... I mean, he's the best manager in Serie A. So if you have the best manager and you have a squad like that, you have a, you have a damn good chance. Roma are, those, are that team that I somehow have just like... You know, there's always one team that you kind of miss, so you just don't quite ever catch. And Roma are that team. So I'm looking forward to seeing a little bit more of them soon because I'm going to make an effort to watch them. But they have only lost one game, and that was because of an admin error more than anything else. So um, that's good news. And Napoli going all-out attacking blitz under Gattuso is also something I never saw coming. Uh, I don't know how sustainable it is, but it is a lot of fun. So I'd give the two Milan teams pole position in terms of turning Juventus over and ending their streak. Uh, but I'd probably have Napoli in there as the, uh, as, as the kind of third horse, as the, as the one that's possibly most sustainable uh, with the asterisk that Roma I'm still getting to grips with. What about you? I must admit, I don't disagree with anything that you've said there, Sam. And I, like you, would really like to see somebody new and interesting, something different happen in Serie A this year because we've, you know, we've got a, to a point of uh, being pretty, pretty dull with Juventus seemingly cantering to the title regardless. I think for me... I'm actually with you on Conte and on an Inter as well. I think almost regardless of tactics, you look at the front two, they've got such a such a good front two, haven't they? And Lukaku and uh, Lataro, uh, a lot of very experienced players, workman-like perhaps, but very experienced players running through that team. And I just think that Conte being the kind of tactician that he is, um, someone that creates that siege mentality, them against us, he will look at it with that group and the kind of opportunity that's there with Juventus being... A little bit uh, in transition, I think, with Pirlo and, and some new players and whatnot. I think he will look at that as an opportunity and just probably get them over the line. But I think Napoli are certainly going to push them uh, most of the way um, under Catuso, which I would never have, have imagined. I certainly didn't think much of him as a manager before he went to Milan, but he did very well there in, in trying kind of circumstances and has added something, brought something different to, to Napoli that I never anticipated. So I think it could be one of the more exciting title races in Europe that said in La Liga we've got it it's pretty wide open as well isn't it so uh, it, sh- it should be exciting regardless well Sam thank you for ever so much for joining us on this week's episode of Laptop Gurus make sure you're giving Sam a follow on Twitter it's S-T-I that's T-I-G-H-E football I'm sure you already are and also check out the Ranks FC podcast it's at Ranks Squad on Twitter finally make sure you never miss an episode of Laptop Gurus by subscribing via Apple Google Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening and we will speak again soon <music>